Thank you for that reading. I think you're familiar with Ernest P. Waller. Is that his name? Like a Worrell? Is that what his name was? Ernest? Uh, back in the, he was really popular, I think in the late 80s or so. Uh, you read that story, you get to the end of it, and you got to go, ooh, ooh. You got to get that weird face going on. So it's a tough text, two texts in a row. As we look at Judges uh, chapter 3 and now Judges chapter 4, where we have uh, kind of gruesome, gruesome endings to these, these stories. Let's see what God has to say uh, to us this week uh, here in, in this text. Well, yesterday was a tough day if you were a top-seeded NFL team. <laughs> the two number one seeds, the Titans and the Packers, they lost which I was walking around the house going, that is good because now we don't have to have a State Farm Super Bowl. Um, but the Packers, uh, in that Packers-Niners game, you remember if you saw that game, if you didn't see it, there was a, at the near the end there was a, a camera shot where they pictured on a, a young person there in the stands sitting close to the field. I just imagine the price of those tickets uh, to that playoff game. And he's sitting there completely decked out in Packers attire and looking completely enveloped in sadness. And once more, we're reminded the story doesn't always go the way we might imagine or expect. There's certainly a lot of fans who are feeling that this morning, fans of top-rated teams. And after last week's reading, uh, you might have thought that you had a lock on the type of person that God would call to use. Uh, when God is trying to, or when God is enacting uh, God's plan, you might say, well, this is the type of person that God would use. Or this is the type of person God would call into service. And we could, of course, you could see this last week with the deliverer judge. You could say, you know, here's the type of person, even though the story might be gruesome, even though the story might have all kinds of uh, places in it where you kind of squirm and go, oh, that's kind of an ancient story. You could still say, hey, here's a piece where this is, I understand what God's up to. And I could see exactly the type of person that God would call. And then this week's reading happens. And everything begins the way we might expect the Israelites, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We see that in verse 1. Uh, we're expecting that kind of cycle throughout the text. We've already heard that. Uh, the narrative, of course, moves through familiar fashion, as we might expect as well. Bad behavior, of course, bad behavior then begets this oppressed by bad actors. And we can see these different things happening. In this particular case, the word cruel is used there, that they're being cruelly treated. Uh, that's an addition from last week. And then we hear cries for deliverance, and it goes on and on and on. So that cycle continues. We see that here in our text. And of course, here I'm reminded of a segment. I watch a lot of football, and I'm reminded of a segment uh, that's uh, been featured in the last couple of football seasons in which there's clips of fans that are shown and then clips of players and coaches, and each one is performing either below standard or they're doing something wrong or they're acting uh, badly in some way. And of course, each clip is then subjected to some kind of comedic commentary uh, as these clips uh, come up on the screen. You might have a, a, a fan uh, who's in the stands, then jumps out of the stands and strips down in the end zone. That's the type of thing that we would see here. Or a referee who signals field goal when it was an obvious miss. Uh, those are the pieces they show here. Um, with each offense, with these clips, the commentator announces what you and I might be sensing and feeling when we hear the start of this story. Come on, man. Come on. And that's why I titled this sermon that. It's another one of those come on man moments here. But then in verse 4, we have a surprising turn. There's a change that happens in, in verse 4 that we're not suspecting. And it, and it relates to who God will raise up as a deliverer. 
But at the same time, the surprise here is that it's not only who, but the question then asks, how many? Before we always saw one judge deliverer, and now we're going to see a committee. And us Presbyterians, we like committees. So this is going to sound good to us. So the first one is this, the judge. The judge in the story, this character, Deborah. We're, of course, introduced to Deborah here, uh, and she comes from the outset of the story. She seems like the likely candidate that you'd expect to be the judge deliverer here uh, in this text. She, of course, is introduced to us as a prophetess and a judge. You see that in verse 4. And in verse 5, the imagery that's used of her in that particular verse, of this one who's sitting there and the people are coming to her to be judged, that's right out of Exodus 18. So this is a picture that's being shown to us of someone who's operating in the same way Moses operated uh, in that text. Of course, if you read through the rest of the description of the things that she's doing in verse 6, we see her in a, a role that's similar to what the later prophet Samuel will inhabit, uh, this type of person who's offering counsel uh, to leadership, to military, uh, who's, who's even offering words at the time of war. Uh, so both associations here point to a place of prominence of this character, of this person, Deborah, amongst her people. But Deborah being a woman, that part there is a little bit surprising. That makes her an unusual candidate. We're not surprised she's a woman. We know women exist, all right? So I'm not saying it's surprising from that standpoint. But at this time in history amongst this people, right, we don't have a lot of examples of someone uh, who is in this kind of office. We don't have any examples, really, of someone in this office uh, who's a woman. So it's surprising to read Deborah. So right from the beginning of the story, we're offered a bit of surprise here with this. We're not too surprised that she operates in the prophetic office. Uh, that's not unheard of in the history of Israel. In fact, they could look back to Miriam and see that historically. They could also look uh, to the future to Huldah and others. You could even go to the New Testament times. Remember the elderly woman, Anna, who's in the temple. And so the role of a, a woman serving as a prophet, that's not, that's not unheard of amongst this people. Of course, uh, what I said already, the unusual part about her in this leadership governance role, that's the part that seems awfully curious that she would be in this role. That here she is mediating disputes, that she's commissioning military leadership, and that she's actually involved in the planning for warfare. It's so unusual uh, to see this happen here that there's some that have gone to great lengths to argue that uh, Deborah is in this position uh, as a reflection or mirroring the chaotic times in which the judges are placed. In fact, they would say at a time in Israel's history when up becomes down and bad becomes good, they would argue that a woman assuming a role that, and this is their argument, that rightly belongs to a man, that naturally belongs to a man, is just another part of that upside-down, turbulent world, the time of judges. But not so fast. Not so fast. Our text makes no such claim, nor does it assume that Deborah at any point is operating outside of her gifts or her calling. That she has what it takes to be in that role. She's not there because somebody else said no. She's there because God said yes. And we're to hear that, that she is the right person for this job. That she is a capable leader. And that role is validated not only by the people in verse 5 who come to her to receive her judgment, but also by the military commander and the armies that she leads and report to her. So capable, in fact, that Barak will, in not so many words, state that Deborah is indispensable, indispensable to the campaign that they're about to undergo in verse 8. 
It's no wonder that in chapter 5 of Deborah's songs, the very next chapter in Judges, this, this poem is introduced called the Song of Deborah that we learn in verse 7, villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose. Until I arose, a mother in Israel. Make no mistake, Deborah is a very capable leader. The unexpected move here from earlier readings is that the judge, though, will call on a deliverer. That the judge is not going to serve as the deliverer. The judge will be a separate office from the one who will be the deliverer here. And so she calls this character Barak. Well, Barak, and I put the deliverer in my notes here with a question mark next to it. The question mark here. Just take note that though Deborah bids Barak to come, that she summons him, it is the Lord who commands Barak to go. We need to make a note of that. She bids him to come. Uh, God commands him to go. This last part is particularly important in recognizing that 10,000 mustered troops that are ready to go to battle at this point may still be disadvantaged against the number of chariots that are listed. That those weapons, which were the height of the day, you thought the greatest military pieces, the -the state-of-the-art military piece, they could cut through that 10,000 like it was nothing. And so to realize that they're not coming with an overwhelming force to fight against these chariots. But the question in verse 8 is, does Barak, does he exhibit doubt to this calling? And particularly this command that God would give him victory. Is there a kind of doubt here when he says, if you will go with me to Deborah, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Perhaps he might be expressing that he's not the man for the job. And that's what some people have argued here. Of course, ancients recounting these events in the future are are far more charitable to Barak than we might be in our first reading of this text. You'll know that Samuel at his farewell address will actually include Barak in that list of those uh, who had been raised up to serve as deliverers, those sent by God in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And you'll recall that uh, in the first century, an early Christian writer in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 when talking about the ancients who were commended for their faith, will list Barak as one of those figures near the end of that great passage in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And then again in verse 39, the commendation. So perhaps this isn't charity at all. Perhaps Barak's request here is a different kind of request. It's not one that comes from a place of fearing or distrusting what God is up to. And actually, if we read it closely, The wording here is very similar to wording that we see in Exodus chapter 33 when Moses asks God to go before him as he goes into mission. So much so that Julie Walsh will observe in her book, The Cross and the Tent Peg, Barak wanted God's prophet with him as Moses wanted God's angel. Barak is being tactically shrewd like a commander should be in this question. He doesn't want to go into battle without all the resources available to him. And he's certainly not going to go into this battle without the Lord. But God might have prepared Barak for this challenge more than he might have even known himself. That he might have been prepared for battle long before this encounter with Deborah, this invitation, this bid to come. In Canaanite mythology, uh, Baal is depicted as riding on the storm clouds with a club in one hand, which is thunder, and a spear in the other, 
which is lightning. So you have this warrior God who's riding out on the storms, carrying thunder and lightning, right? Going out there and doing battle. And his people, Baal's people, the Canaanites, would benefit from the strength of this God going forward. Well, here's the thing. Barak's name means lightning. Lightning in the hand of one who calls him and has commissioned him to do battle. And of course, you read again into Judges chapter 5, the poetry there. The poet's telling of what transpires appropriately draws upon storm imagery, which you'll see in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 of Judges. Remember Baal riding on the storm cloud. When the Lord goes to battle, a storm ensues, and he brings lightning with him. But the one who accompanies Barak is the true rider of the storm, and that's what a later psalmist will write in Psalm 68. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds, rejoice before him. His name is not Baal, his name is the Lord. So Barak goes into battle and wins certain victory on the battlefield, but he doesn't get the glory of dispensing with Sisera. That distinction will go, here we go again, to a woman. And that's promised by Deborah in verse 9. But to a woman in this case, who's quite unexpected. Deborah had all the qualities. She certainly was very capable. It was clear that God had called her and equipped her for her role. Jael, the executioner. This is a different story. This is a different person. Jail here, when she kills Sisera, it's a very gruesome thing. We're not going to go into that. We don't even have to go into the mechanics of a tent peg going through someone's head and into the ground. I think you can picture that and realize that that would kill you. <laughs> if it didn't, you wish it did. <laughs> but the surprise here for Jail is that she's an outsider. That's the surprise here in the story, the surprise twist here, that this third member of the committee that serve as judge deliverers here in this story that she's a Kenite. And Kenites, of course, are a nomadic people that are retaining friendly relations with Israel. We see that in Judges chapter 1, verse 16, uh, that they are ones who camp alongside. And so her actions on that front aren't totally surprising, that she would side with Israel and that she would execute Israel's enemy here, that she would be part of this assassination here. What is surprising, though, is her husband, according to verse 17, has formed some kind of pact with Jabin, and thereby Sisera would be under that pact, that peaceful pact that exists between them. He sold out the Canaanite friendship with Israel so they can keep peace with, with Jabin and this empire. She's way out of bounds at this point. In her own household, she's taking a position, a different kind of position. But even so, God's prophet here is going to refuse is going to refer to her in chapter 5, verse 24, as most blessed of women. Jael gets the glory. The outs that an outsider could not only factor into the deliverance of God's people, that she would be blessed as well. That's surprising. But also, it's quite something. Corey Plockmeyer writes this in observing this text and commentating on this. He says, In a world full of such darkness... We need the glimmer of hope that the covenant is not meant to be contained to the people of God. The good news of the gospel is for the whole world, for all peoples. Deborah did not wait to see 
a firm commitment to serving God before singing the praises of jail. I think that's the astounding thing of this story, the surprising thing. Is that all the characters, the top-seated folks that we are expecting to be the ones who bring deliverance and salvation, the ones that are incorporated into God's plan, and the ones who are participating on the right side of history, so to speak, are the predictable ones, the people that fit all the molds. And then Jael destroys that for us. It breaks it up for us. And we get surprised once more of God at work here. William Cooper was a famous English poet with a troubled mind. I think I can say that about him. It's been a number of years since 1763. <laughs> but he had a troubled mind. The story goes that on a dark night in 1763, he convinced himself that he should end his life. And so Cooper was going to drown himself on the Thames. He went down there, it was low tide. Water wasn't deep enough to drown himself effectively in it. So he went home and he decided that he was going to poison himself. And for whatever reason, he wasn't able to raise the bottle to his lips. He was going to drink this poison. Each time he felt almost like an invisible hand stopping him uh, from drinking uh, this poison. So he decided to hang himself. And the rope broke. Right, that's a lot of signs in one day that, <laughs> that tell you you might be doing the wrong thing. There's a guidepost article that actually talks about uh, his story. It says that this desperate man needed a fresh start. What the article didn't share is Cooper actually would then go in and, and, and be held uh, in, in a place at the time where people would go, essentially, who were suicidal, and they, they'd hold them and try to care for them. And so he ends up in that, in that place. Well, four years later, he ends up getting a fresh start and, and moving uh, to a place called Olney. And there he meets a fella that you may have heard of before. His name's John Newton. The two collaborated together on a number of hymns. I kind of chuckle when I say a number of hymns. They wrote like 350 of them. <laughs> That's a number of hymns. You're familiar with one of the hymns that Newton wrote, right? Amazing Grace. We've heard that one before. But you might not be familiar with Cooper's work. Uh, he wrote one that's called Light Shining Out of Darkness. You can still find that hymn if you do a search on the internet. Light Shining Out of Darkness, you'll see that hymn. You'll see the words to it. It's about his experience, him reflecting on his own dark past and how God provides light even in those circumstances. But perhaps if the hymn is obscure to you and you're not familiar with it, perhaps the first line might sound familiar. God moves in a mysterious way. God moves in a mysterious way. And indeed, that's true. We see that in today's text. It doesn't get more mysterious than that for bringing salvation. That the one hero achieves the deliverance of God's people through the workings of three people. That, of course, is quite unexpected here in the book of Judges. And God does move in mysterious ways in working through a woman to lead and govern in a generation where such a choice would seem strange and peculiar but it wasn't. Or even choosing a man to serve in a military capacity, a man whose name, as we said, means lightning. But think about his upbringing. His dad's name means father of pleasantness. <laughs> it couldn't get more different than that. Or even to involve an outsider as a key part of the story, the salvation story, who later will be called blessed. The good news is that God claims all kinds of people. And I'll put it in terms that our generation uses now. Uh, 
He'll use he, hims, and she, hers, and they, thems. God uses all kinds of people, bidding us to come and follow, equipping us for the journey before us, and sending this diverse group, this diverse group into service. We're not surprised when we encounter this because we encounter it so many times in Scripture. So many times. God calling nobodies from nowheres. Calling them to be somebody to be headed somewhere. And so this morning, I think for us as we sit with this text and the story, as we see these three people, but we see the hero behind the three, we shouldn't be surprised when we see God doing the same thing here, today, and now, drawing us together and inviting even more into this space, a diverse group sent out to participate in the story of God's salvation. May it be so for us in this generation and forever. Let's pray together.